Well, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. We, we introduced this thorny passage last week, and I'm chuckling a little bit because um, I feel like I have wrestled an alligator to the ground about three or four times working through the exegesis of this passage um, hopefully you won't feel like that whenever we walk through it this morning. Um, but today we're going to wade a little deeper into, into the water and we're going to look at the extent of Adam's sin and Adam's judgment, which is actually death's reign. I mean, you might think of what we did last week in verse 12, like, like getting into the shallow end of the, uh, of the swimming pool, and then the water just keeps getting deeper and deeper as you, you go along. And today we're going to find ourselves in the eight-foot section of the, of the pool, in verses 13 and 14. Now, it's my job to give you some floaties for your swim, but I'll warn you, it is a wave pool. There's no question about that. And passages like verses 12 through verse 21 remind us that God inspires hard texts. Um, it, it, it forces us to, to look at Scripture and, uh, and think hard. But before Paul gets to the end of this passage in verse 21, we're going to rejoice in the lifeguard that uh, pulls us out of the water, whose name is Jesus Christ, which is his whole point. Paul makes us swim out over our heads first, flail a little bit, uh, because once you realize your, your need of a rescue, that's what is actually going to, to give you the security that, uh, that Christ brings. It's going to lead you to rejoice in the security. When you see how bad it is, and it's really, really bad, that's going to show you how good it is, and it's really, really good in Jesus Christ. I mean, what Paul actually teaches in this passage is foundational both for a Christian and uh, and a non-Christian alike. I mean, if you're not in Christ yet, this passage explains the source of all the problems in the the world and and also in your own soul. It explains why people die. It explains where death came from, which is an answer that that you don't have um, and, and a problem that you can't solve no matter how hard you try. This passage is also vital for believers. If you're a believer, it it cements another block in the foundation of your assurance. I mean, that's the whole theme of this section. And it does that by teaching you about your union with Christ and how your union with Christ changes everything. You were once in union with Adam, and Paul says now you're in union with Christ. Remember, that's, that's his point. All the way back in verse 1 of chapter 5, his theme is assurance and certainty because of, of the work of, of Christ, because of your justification that you receive by faith alone. He teaches us in verses 1 through 11 that, that we, we have assurance because our relationship with God has changed. Uh, we, we now have peace with God. We're reconciled with God. So there's assurance and there's security in the fact that having been justified, our relationship to God has changed. We were once at war with God. God was our enemy, and we were His enemies, and that's changed. And now, verses 12 through 21, Paul keeps this theme of assurance and shows us how our relationship to Adam also changes. And that was through our association with with Jesus Christ. We were once in Adam, and we were condemned in Adam as Adam stands uh, as the head of the human race. And now we are in Christ, and we're forgiven in Him. No longer condemned as, as Christ stands at the head of the redeemed. And that shift brought about a reign, uh, a reign of grace and life instead of a reign of condemnation and death that that we're all under. And the, the actual, the heart of this passage uh, is the similarity and the contrast be- between the, these two heads, between Adam and, and Christ. The similarity between Adam and, and Jesus is that we're now in Christ as believers, as we were once in Adam and as condemned people, as unsaved people. And the contrast 
between the two is what each representative brings. I mean, Adam brings condemnation and death, and there's no escaping that, and Christ brings grace and, and life. And I told you last week, the section is quite complicated uh, when you start trying to figure out how all of the, the details connect. I mean, the theology, his theme is very clear. But when you start figuring out how the, the pieces, trying to follow Paul's logic, uh, it, it, can get, it can get difficult. What helps you, though, is Paul will shine his security light in two primary places that keep, keeps you keeps you on track. I mean, he's going to say the same thing about six different ways. And all of them, he compares and contrasts these, the, these two figures. And they cast their shadow over every human being that, that ever has lived and ever will live. And both of these figures have an inheritance associated with them. Adam provides a birthright of sin and death and grace and, and Christ's great grace and life. I said, you look at verses 21, uh, 12 through 21 as humanity as, as a whole. Um, specifically, how Adam's fall and his headship over humanity affects every person born in him and born after him. This passage doesn't answer all of the questions. In fact, you may walk away from this passage this morning with, with more questions. And that's not bad. We're actually having a Q&A at church tonight with the baptism and the Lord's Supper. Um, but this passage is, is to communicate one specific truth. Um, as we were once in Adam, we are now in Christ. It, it gives a panorama of history from the Garden of Eden to heaven. And, and what we see when we look at that from the Garden of Eden to heaven, you look at the Bible as a whole, you see two towering figures. And their shadow is cast over, over people. Or to say it simply, there are two men marked by two acts that bring about two very different results. There's the disobedience of Adam that resulted in corruption and death spreading to the whole world. And there is the righteous obedience of Jesus that resulted in justifying grace and the salvation of all who will believe. And as powerful and as wide-sweeping as Adam's fall was, Paul's point is Christ's work is even greater, much more, he says. And that is what brings us hope and, and assurance, which again is Paul's primary theme. Now let me show you how this whole passage goes together. We just introduced it in verse 12 last time. Um, but let me show you how the whole thing fits together, and then we'll go back and we'll take another bite in verses 13 and, and, and 14. Now, Paul begins his thought in verse 12. Look if you would at verse 12. I'm going to show you how verse 12 through verse 21 uh, all fits together. This is the alligator wrestled to the ground with his mouth taped shut, okay? Verse 12. Therefore... Just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. That's the, the introduction to this new theme. So last week, we saw that sin entered through Adam, and death entered through sin into the world, and that death spread to all because all sinned. I mean, the ultimate evidence human beings are in union with Adam is that we die, just like Adam died. I mean, you go back to the genealogy in Genesis. They lived a lot longer before the flood, but whether it was 700 years or 900 years, you read that genealogy, it says, and he died, and then the next one, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and the point is, in Adam all died. I mean, that, that's the reinforcement that, that's there, which is what Paul says here in verse 12. The ultimate evidence human beings are in union with Adam is that we all die. This passage also shows us, besides telling us where sin and death came from, that sin and death was not part of God's original creation. But it teaches, uh, teaches that by, by introducing uh, a comparison. So the comparison, Paul sets up here in, in verse 12, and you can see that with the words, just as. Therefore, just as through one man, and with those words you would then expect Paul to complete that. You, you would expect him to say, so also, or, or even as, this, this, this other guy, just as this, even so that. But, but if you look at 
verse 12, the, you expect this second part of the statement coming, but, but notice in your Bibles there is no second part in, in verse 12. In fact, at the end of your, your, your verse 12 in your Bibles, there's like a long dash. Do you see that? Or maybe even, probably even better, a parenthesis that starts in verse 13 and goes all the way through verse 17. And that's exactly right, because that's what's happening there. A big parenthetical statement, actually two of them. So Paul doesn't pick back up this original point or give us the other half of the comparison until you get to verse 18. You, you can see it better if you put the both of them together. Look at verse 12 and then jump down to verse 18. Set aside verses 13 and 17 for, for a second. Let me show you how this, the thought flows. Verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And then look at verse 18. Even so, here's the second half, even so, halfway through verse 18, even so, through uh, one act of righteousness, there resulted in justification to all. Just as sin came through one, even so, justification comes through another. And then verse 19 just summarizes the whole thought. Look at verse 19. For as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so the obedience of one, uh, the many will be made righteous. He just restates what he said in verse 12 and what he said in verse 18. He brings them both together in verse, in verse 19. Or as my friend Joel James says, uh, repetition is the mother of learning. And Paul just repeats the same thing over and over and over. So his main theme is two representatives marked by two acts that bring about two different results. Two different results to the people associated with both of those individuals. So where do you get, when you get stuck in the weeds trying to figure out how all of this goes together, come back to those governing truths uh, with the theme that he's going to build your assurance. So what about the rest of it? It starts in verse 12 and finishes in verse 18. What about verses 13 and 14 and verses 15 through, through, through 17? Well, this is where Paul actually clarifies a few things that he doesn't want you to get confused about. So he starts his idea in verse 12, and then he, he kind of goes on this little rabbit trail or a parenthesis, which is what we're going to look at today. He says at the end of verse 12, all sinned. And with that statement, that, that brings up a bunch of questions that, that Paul wants to, to answer at least a few of them before he goes on and completes his, his thoughts. So verse 13, look at this parenthesis. I mean, what do I mean all sin? It's like this is what Paul's saying. What do I mean all sin in Adam and individually? I mean, how is that possible? How does that work? Explanation. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed or accounted in the same way when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. There's a hint of, of the, the good news that, that's coming. And then he explains what he means by, by this last statement about Adam is a type. He just kind of throws that in there. So now he feels like he needs to explain a little bit more, which is verse 15. I mean, what do I mean? Adam is a type of Christ who is coming in the future. I mean, don't misunderstand me. There are similarities between Adam and Christ. There are also differences. So verse 15, let, let me tell you some of the differences, Paul says. But the free gift is not like the transgression. They're similar in the fact that Adam is a type of Christ... But they're also different. Let me explain the differences. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one many died, much more. The difference. Did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to, to many. I mean, again, Paul feels the need to explain what he means so you, you, you don't get confused. Adam foreshadows the one to come, but the two are not exactly the same. There's some massive differences. It's like saying, I'm making a general comparison here, but don't press that too far. And so then he outlines the differences so you, you don't get confused. And then he finally returns to 
his original thought that he introduces in verse 12, in verse 18. And since it's been a long time, he, he restates it. Verse 18. So then, as though one transgression there resulted in condemnation to all men, which is basically what he said back in verse 12, even so, through one act of righteousness, the, uh, there resulted justification to life. Two men, two acts, and two results. And then, as I said, in verse 19, he gives the summary. So what's the purpose of verse 20 and, and 21? Well, this is another add-on that explains what Paul says about the law in verse, in verse 13. We'll give you it at verse 13, which is the passage we're going to look at today. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed where there was no law. So, so what then is the purpose of the law, Paul? He kind of throws this idea about the law out there and brings up some questions that he now comes back in verses 20 and 21 and describes. Look at verse 20. The law came in so that transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. What's the purpose of the law, Paul? Well, here's the purpose of the law. It was a mirror to show us how sinful sin actually was, and it was a schoolmaster to, to lead us to Christ. So that's how the whole passage goes together. We're going to look at it uh, one bite at a time, and we're going to start with the, with the parenthesis here in verse 13, which explains, Paul begins to explain, the reach of sin, and in particular, Adam's fall. Um, there are some questions that Paul anticipates that you're going to have, or the Jews reading this would have, or the Roman Christians would have, and he feels the need to explain them. And so when he starts uh, explaining our union with Adam in verse, verse 12, and he says, all have sinned in Adam, and he says, all have sinned on our own, both are true, but he doesn't answer exactly how that works. I mean, is mankind guilty because of Adam? Or are we judged uh, by our own guilt? Or, or is it both? He doesn't really answer that in, in verse 12. I mean, how do I square what Paul says in verse 12, that Adam brings about sin and that we're judged in Adam and then we follow in Adam's likeness? How do I square that with the rest of the Bible? particularly the Old Testament record. And then the Mosaic Law. I mean, the Mosaic Law doesn't come for hundreds and hundreds of years after, after Adam. And the law is what shows, shows what is specifically right and wrong. I mean, I know Genesis 3 says that God brought a curse, uh, the curse of death into the world because of Adam's disobedience. And that's, that's very important. But it sure seems like God was holding individual people, individual people accountable for their own sin, like in Genesis 6 with the global flood. And how does what Paul says here in, in verse 12 square with, with what he says back in verse 15? How does his explanation in verse 13 about the law square with that? I mean, verse, Paul's already said in chapter 4, last chapter, for the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. So if there is no transgression because there is no law, then how can God hold me guilty and, and accountable? I mean, how can God judge people guilty of sin before he, he gave law? I mean, how, how can God say that, that he'll judge us in, in, in that way when Romans 4.15 says there's no transgression? Without the law, I mean, does that mean that people who don't have a Bible today, or or that they they don't know the Ten Commandments, that that they're not guilty? Are they guilty in the same way as people who actually have the Ten Commandments and the, and the law, or or even other questions that come up, like like what about what about babies or people that don't have mental faculties that that can't sin willfully? I mean, they don't have the uh, the a volitional ability to transgress. Are they guilty? How are they guilty? Um, are they judged as sinners before God? And if so, on what basis? I mean, these are some of the questions that Paul answers and anticipates here. And all of that's wrapped up in what Paul means by, by the term all sin. Now you begin to understand why this is one of the most difficult passages, if not the most difficult passage 
in all of Romans. And he now explains the implications, or starts to explain the implications of of all of that in, in verse 12. And embedded in this text, which is verses 13 and 14, there are three evidences that prove the comprehensive reach, comprehensive meaning all, the comprehensive reach of Adam's sin. The first evidence that Paul gives is sin's undeniable presence even before the law. The second That's proven by death's universal reign apart from the law. Death reigns from Adam to Moses. Gives a specific time period. And the third evidence is that it's all foreshadow or a foreshadowing of Adam's unmistakable representation of the one who is to come, who is Jesus Christ. So you have an undeniable presence, a universal reign, and an unmistakable representation presented here as evidences of Adam's original sin and how far that stretches to you and to me and to everyone else. Let's look at each of these one at a time. The first evidence that he gives here of original sin is sin's undeniable presence before the law. Look, if you would, at verse 13. I know I'm making you work this morning, but it's worth the the effort. Look at verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Again, this is an explanation, and we know that because it starts with a little letter four, or a little word four. It explains what Paul just got done saying in verse 12, specifically his phrase that, that all sinned. So what does Paul mean in verse 12, that that all sinned? All sinned in Adam, meaning that we're judged by God in the one man Adam? Or all sinned themselves individually? Or all sinned because they're corrupted by Adam's sin nature and then we sin in the likeness of Adam? We we said last week that the natural reading of of verse 12 is, is our individual sin, all sinned. Every time Paul uses that phrase, it's about your individual sin. You sin individually. But verse 12 is all about Adam's sin. How Adam brought sin into the world and death into the world. And so in one sense, all of those statements are true. You sin in Adam. God judges you in Adam. You sin individually and you have Adam's corrupted nature. You got that from him. And because of that, you you sin. Paul's main overarching point, though, to this whole passage is a comparison between the acts of Adam and the acts of Christ. And and so that's the main theme, Adam's sin. In fact, he uses the word one. He repeats the word one 12 times from verses 12 through through 19. By the one, by the one man, uh, the one transgressions. I mean, it's very clear he's connecting all of this to, to Adam and then to Christ. He's pointing to Adam's original disobedience and that it has wide-sweeping consequences. Sin and death came into the world and its reign is there because of Adam's original sin. He was God's representative of the human race. Another way you can know that is he doesn't call Eve on the carpet, right? I mean, Eve's the one that tempted Adam, but who does he specify here? It was Adam's transgression because Adam is the head of the human race. He was the first one created in God's image and Eve from him. And our sin actually shows that death is is a just consequence. The evidence that he offers for that is that sin was in the world before the law of Moses. What is the evidence of Adam's original sin? Paul says sin was in the world before the the law of Moses. Notice it's a specific time frame that he introduces here. He says it's from the moment of Adam's fall up to the point when God appeared to Moses and gave Moses and then the, the people of God his revealed law. And in case you doubt that, he specifically defines it in verse 14. Look at verse 14. 
He switches to death here from sin, but nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. It's very clear, the time period that he's focusing on here. So he says, the first proof that I will offer for the fact that Adam's judgment was passed to us is the presence of sin in the world before God gave a law that could mark your individual sin. I mean, when the the law came, it's easy to mark individual sin. I mean, don't do this. And then you cross the line, and then you're a transgressor. It's, uh, It's very clear. You, as an individual, are guilty whenever the law comes into the world, which is one of the purposes of the law, to make sin utterly sinful. Paul says, I coveted, but I didn't know specifically what coveting was until I read, thou shalt not covet. So when the law comes, it's very clear what's a transgression. But the evidence that mankind bears Adam's guilt, and his nature for that matter, is the fact that sin was in the world before God gave a defined marker. I mean, sin was in the world before a defined law was was given. That's his first statement. But now the question that he has to answer when he makes that statement is, is how can those who never had law be guilty of sin. I mean, if that's his point, I mean, you, 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 uh, you're guilty in Adam, and that's proven by sin, then how can someone who never had the, the law be guilty of individual sin and then be charged by God? I mean, if Paul is only talking about the fact that we sin in Adam here, then that's not really an issue. I mean, you're guilty in Adam, you die in Adam, and, and your guilt is completely associated with him. But if the end of verse 12 says that we sin individually, and you read passages like Genesis 6 where God is saying people sin individually, then how do people sin? How does God call people sinners before the Mosaic law? As I said, if you read the Old Testament, it's pretty clear that God attributes sin not only to Adam, but also to individuals. I think the prime example is Genesis 6 which stands very close. and It's actually in the shadow of Adam's fall. Genesis 6. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. I mean, that sounds... Pretty much like individual accountability to me. In the context of Adam's fault. I mean, what's the point of Genesis uh, 4 through 11, Cain and Abel? How bad was the fall? It was as bad as murder. How bad was the fall? God had to destroy the entire human race. Well, Paul's already given the answer to this question. How can God hold, call people sinners without the law? He's actually already gave us the answer back in... Romans 1, 19 through 20. He says, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, there's notice creation, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what He has made. Not through the law, but through creation. So that they are without excuse. That's how God can call people sinners for the the Mosaic law or how God can call people sinners today in a foreign country that's never had a Bible, that's never even heard, thou shalt not murder or, or kill. Notice Paul is not saying in verse 13, where there is no law, there is no sin. He's talking about how it's accounted for. Back at verse 13 again. For until the law, sin was in the world. Okay, that's the proof of Adam's original sin. That's the proof that Adam's sin and his judgment passed to you. What's the evidence? Sin was in the world, even before there was a law that could mark your individual sin. But sin is not imputed where there is no law. He's talking about accounting here. He's not saying that that there was no sin where there is no law. He says God accounts for it in a different way before the law comes. You see that? He's already told us in chapter 2 that the Gentiles who didn't have the the law of Moses had a law unto themselves. He he says in verse uh, 415 that I showed you earlier, where there is no law, there is no 
transgression. And the specific meaning of transgression, there's a specific transgression of a specific law. But that's not the only word that the Bible uses for sin. Transgression means there's a line and you step over the line. But sin means you fall short of something. There are things that you omit. It's a general word. And then there's another word that the Bible uses, which is iniquity. This, this rebellion, this attitude that's in the heart. What comes out in, in the human being because of Adam is transgressions. Whenever there's a specific line, once the line came, we transgressed. There's a, there's a general falling short, a general omission of loving God and looking to God. And then there's this rebellion that's there. All of that is an evidence of Adam's, of Adam's fall. So Paul here is reconciling all of these truths. I mean, sin was in the world before the Mosaic Law because of Adam's original sin. But the sin of individuals was not recorded the same way as a transgression. But there's still guilt. The word that Paul uses here for impute, you see that? Your, your Bible probably uses the word reckon or, or impute. It's, it's an accounting term. It's different from the word that he uses back in chapter 4 about imputing Christ's righteousness or God's righteousness to you. This simply means the registering of a debt to record something. I mean, Paul's saying before the law came, it's not a matter of guilt and it's not a matter of sin's presence. It's a matter of accounting. Not, that they're, not whether there's a debt, but how it's, how it's recorded. And Adam, who played an original role in the condemnation, he actually had a direct command from God that acted like a law. Look at what verse 14 says. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned like Adam. How did Adam sin? In the likeness of the offense of Adam. How did Adam sin? God said, you can do all of these things, but I give you this one command. Do not eat from this tree. So Adam transgressed. He specifically violated a command of God. He transgressed God's words. And even though people between Adam and Moses didn't have the same interaction with God, they don't have the same kind of law that Adam had or or that Moses had, they still sinned. And so they're still accountable. How do we know that? Well, Paul gives us the, the answer. The evidence is that they died. What were they held accountable to? Well, he's already answered that in Romans 1. Creation and nature and the law written on their hearts. Just like Gentiles who don't have the Mosaic law, all people before Moses are still considered sinners and they die. And just like all people all over the world right now who never have heard the Bible, which is the whole purpose of evangelism and missions, they're still considered sinners and die. They can't say, I didn't have the law, therefore you can't hold me accountable. That's Paul's point. And the reason sin and judgment is in the world is because of Adam's guilt. Thomas Reiner said, verses 13 and 14, declare to us the power of death is so great, the power of Adam's fall is so great, that it exercises dominion over people even if no law exists. And beyond that, violating a commandment revealed by God increases the seriousness of sin because then it's more defiant, it's more rebellious. And you say, prove that, Paul. And Paul says, well, it's pretty evident. Everybody dies. Here's the second evidence that proves the comprehensive reach of Adam's sin. It's the universal reign of death apart from the law. So sin was there before the law, and death was reigning before the law. Look at verse 14. Nevertheless, even though it's not accounted in the same way, it's not accounted as a transgression, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, even those, even those who had not sinned in the, in the strictest sense of a transgression. Our Declaration of Independence says we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, 
But they're endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of, of happiness. But Paul says there is no truth more self-evident than the inevitability of death. John MacArthur said you can go to any country at any time in history and you will find the earth pockmarked with graves. Even the term mortal, you're a mortal man or a mortal woman, you know what the term mortal means? It means somebody subject to death. Death is coming. You're subject to it. And we try to sanitize that reality. Did you know that uh, old churches, you may find a, a really old church and you may see this, put their, put their graveyards in the front yard of the church rather than in the back? Have you ever seen a church like that? And there's a pathway, like there's a sidewalk that goes right between the tombstones to get into the church. You know why they did that? You have to walk through the tombstones that remind you of the curse before you heard the glorious gospel that actually cures it. That's the point. This is where we're all going to end up. Now come inside and let me tell you how you can be sure of where you're going after that happens. And that's what Paul's doing here. I mean, he's not hiding it. He says death is the evidence. He says it's proof that Adam's guilt was passed to us and, and, and that sin was in the world before the law. I mean, during this time that people didn't have a specific command like, like Adam, but they were still charged with sin. And the proof of that is death reigned. Or to say it another way, death sets as king over all people at all time. Death sat as king from Genesis 4 all the way up through, through Exodus. And death sets as king even over people today that don't have Bibles. Even if sin was recorded differently for a Jew or a Gentile or before or after the law, death reigns. That's what the word reign means. It means to exercise kingly powers. Death sets as a king upon the throne. And Lord Jones says what Paul is saying here is sin can exist and that God regards it as sin and deals with it as sin apart from being defined as transgression by the law given through Moses. Of course, that would be very important for a Jew, wouldn't it? And regardless of whether sin is regarded or counted as a transgression of the law of Moses or not, the proof of guilt is that people die. Verse 13 and 14 actually explain original sin. Paul says, you don't believe original sin? You don't believe that Adam's sin was passed on to you and that you were judged in him? Then how do you explain death? And specifically, death reigning where there is no law. You say, well, death came because human beings sinned after Adam. And you'd be partially right. Human beings clearly sinned after Adam, and God holds them individually accountable. But, 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 but how then do you explain death coming to an infant before they can commit a specific transgression? I mean, the baby in, in, in the womb, in utero, doesn't step over the line of God's law, and yet they die. Paul says the answer is because they're joined to Adam. They were born from him. They were born under his judgment, born with his nature, born with his inherited guilt, conceived with that guilt. I mean, the Bible says you were, you were born in shape and are conceived in, in iniquity. And the proof of the guilt is that they die even before they willfully break a law by volition by like, like Adam did. And the good news is I think the grace of Christ reaches even to that extent as, as well. But Paul says human beings die without the law and, and there's no specific command, where there's no specific command that they transgress and human beings die before they're able even to commit a specific transgression. And Paul says the reason is God created Adam first and made him the head of the human race and so when he plunged, everybody plunged. And so when God judged Adam, he judged all those in Adam. And then all those born in Adam sinned themselves showing God's condemnation was just. And all of that is, in, 
is called inherited guilt. I mean, you might think of it this way. You start life condemned because of Adam, and you add to your condemnation yourself. You didn't choose to be born a sinner, but you are clearly born a sinner. Why? Because of Adam. But then once the fact that you're born a sinner, when you're able, you start choosing sin yourself, don't you? Which proves your guilt and Adam's guilt. You start corrupted because of Adam, and then you corrupt yourself by acting corruptly. And we're not just considered guilty before God because of Adam. We actually are guilty because we sin as well. As I said, you're born a sinner in sin. My mother conceived me, and you didn't choose that. And you didn't do that. That's how you're born. And God declares through Paul the reason was Adam, and because of that you die. But then because you're a sinner, as I said, you sin yourself. There's not a single human being born who has not sinned. There's no one who pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and at the moment that they could choose uh, themselves and had the faculties of volition actually chose righteousness all the time. Like the one who grew a little older and said, you know what? I'm going to change things. I'm going to be the one guy who changes it all. I mean, I might have been born into Adam, but I'm not going to sin like him. I'm going to obey God perfectly. I mean, the empirical evidence that Pelagius was wrong, that we're born without a sin nature in blank slates, is that no one in the history of mankind ever did that. There's not a single person in Scripture, not a single person ever born who's ever done that. And frankly, if there was the gospel would be meaningless. You see how Paul is connecting the sin of Adam to the gospel? The gospel would be meaningless if you had the ability to do that or if that's what Scripture was teaching because then you wouldn't need a Savior. You need a personal trainer. You need a life coach. You would just need a little bit more personal resolve and somebody to teach you self-discipline which is exactly what people believe. They believe you just need certain teaching or a certain environment or more discipline, just a little behavioral modification, and then that will solve your, your problem. That's what unbelievers say. What's mind-boggling is Christians actually believe that. And what they don't understand is, is you can't have that truth and the gospel. That actually guts the gospel. It gives you no reason for the gospel. And if you believe that, you don't need the Son of God to suffer and die on a cross and shed His blood. That your sins might be covered. You need a motivator. You need somebody to help you overcome your sin. And everyone in here knows deep down that you don't need a motivator or a life coach. Because you've tried, even with those things, and, and you've failed over and over and over. You know, just like Paul says here, that sin is in you. And you need somebody to deal with it. And I'm here this morning, and Paul's here this morning, to tell you that there's only one person who can, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he did deal with it. And if you're in him, that's the assurance that you have. And the evidence of that, as oddly as it might sound, is this original sin of Adam. Here's the third evidence that Paul offers here. It's Adam's unmistakable representation of Christ. Look at verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. So death is the evidence that sin was there, even when there wasn't a, a, a law to mark their transgressions. And then he kind of throws this at the end. Who is a type? Adam, who is a type of him who was to come? The word is tupos or prototype. Now I'm going to date myself here. I think that they're called a mimeograph. Do you remember all the way back in school whenever your teacher would give you a test, there was this, this purple paper that they would give you and it was like this circular thing? I can remember getting the... The paper, I mean, some of you, anybody under, under 40 in here is looking at me like, what in the world are you talking about? 
and it was kind of still wet, and you could, I could remember smelling the ink off of it. This mimeograph, you put the original in there, and it produced copies. The word tupas, or a prototype, is, is sort of like that word. Paul says, just as Adam's failing work affects all in him, Adam the original, and then there are things that, that are copied to everybody else, the guilt, the sin nature, Paul says there's another figure coming. Adam who is a type of the one who is to come. Paul says there's another figure coming and his victorious work will affect all in him as well. I mean, Adam is the prototype of the original creation and therefore the fall. And he says, so Christ is the head of the new creation and salvation. And he clearly describes the result of Adam's work in the previous verses which points us to how the results of Christ will come to mankind as well. He's saying that that just as their, their results of Adam being in Adam is passed to all those in Adam, that's how the righteousness of Christ is going to be passed to all those who are in Him. That's what's similar. Remember, verses 15 through 17, that what's coming is there's also some differences the similarity is how the transfer happens. The Bible says God deals with humanity through heads. Adam was the head of all mankind, and he says Christ is the head of all the redeemed. You might think of the stories in, uh, of, uh, of Israel where, where, where there's the sin of one, and that affects all the other people. You might read, read some of those, and they might have been, un, been uncomfortable. Like the sin of Achan affecting all of Israel, you say, well, why does Israel get judged for, for Achan? Or like in First Chronicles, I think it's 21, where David numbers Israel. You remember where David is, the king numbers Israel? And then Israel gets punished. And you go, well, that's a pretty stinky deal. I mean, David's the one that numbered them. These guys are just running around innocent, not doing anything. Is that actually true? They're running around innocent, not doing anything? Or... Maybe the passage, like I think Exodus 34, where it says the sins of the fathers are, are, are meted out on, on the, the children to the third and fourth generation, and you read that and you go, what is that about? Why do kids get judged for what their, their parents did? You can get in a lot of ditches if you don't understand what's going on there. That might seem like some heavy stuff, but this whole idea that that they're heads of, of the human race and head, there's a head of the redeemed is what Paul's talking about here. I mean, the Bible is painting a true picture of humanity. And if you stumble over that, it's because you really don't think that you're that bad. You don't deserve. Israelites don't deserve what, what the, the judgment that came because of David. The only way out of that predicament is, is God's rescue plan. There is no other way. Death attacks you because of Adam. Death attacks you because you're a sinner personally. And if you think that that's not fair, that I should be judged for the sin of someone else like Adam, the first thing that you should, you should say to yourself when you think that is if that's true, then it's not fair that I am forgiven because of the righteousness of someone else, one individual. And the Bible doesn't say you're only condemned because of Adam, you, you also condemn yourself. Were any of the people of those stories of Israel that we mentioned sinless themselves, like, like the sons or were the Israelites? Of course not. They were sinners too. They weren't innocent. Yet they were judged because of the sin of a, of a leader. And God meets that out some way, in a way that, that's completely just, related to their own sin as well. In the same way, you're judged because of the sin of Adam, but you're not innocent yourself. I mean, can you truly stand before God and say that's not fair because I did nothing wrong? Adam did everything wrong? You know you can't. No more than you can say, I am a, I'm a little bit righteous, but Jesus helped me out. But I contributed. You know you can't say that either. A true believer would repudiate both of those ideas. You would say, I know my father Adam sinned and I did as well and therefore I deserve judgment. And you would say Christ is the only one who's perfectly righteous and I didn't deserve his record, but by God's grace and grace alone I have it. 
Do you see the good news that Paul is sharing here? I mean, Adam is a, is a tupos of the one to come. I mean, just like you have imputed guilt in Adam, you also have imputed righteousness from Christ. Remember, Paul's goal is to build assurance by showing us that one man's death provided salvation for many. But in order to do that, he first has to show us how one man's sin produced condemnation for, for many. How the activity, I mean, how could the activity of one man at one point in time in history bring all this universal death and destruction into the world? The same way the act of another man at one point in history could bring righteousness and life to all who are in him. Because in, tri- in Christ, we're treated as if we have his record. And he was righteous even though we're not. And God credits us with His righteousness and then treats us as if we were righteous. Paul says it's the same way Adam's guilt was imputed to us, who was the image of the one to come. God credits us with Adam's condemnation and treats us condemned just like once we receive Christ's righteous credit, then we're treated as righteous in Him. And what awaits those in Christ is glorification and what awaits those in Adam is damnation. Jesus actually says this very thing or implies this very same thing in in, in probably what you would consider a simpler way. It's in John chapter 3. You remember the conversation he has with Nicodemus? Remember what he says to Nicodemus? You must be born again. You must be born from above. You cannot enter heaven being an Adam. Flesh and blood cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. There's nothing that you can do by being a teacher of the law or having the law that can allow you to climb up into heaven. You must have a new birth, a new nature. You must be disconnected from Adam and you must be connected to Christ and that comes through regeneration, through a new birth. And that comes by faith and grace in hearing the gospel. So the question you have to answer this morning is, are you in Adam? Well, I can tell you whether you are. Are you in Christ? Because if you're in Christ, you're no longer in Adam. But if you've never come to Christ, whatever you think, however good you think you are, Sin is still in you and still reigns over you. How do I know that? And how do you know that? You're dying and you will die. And yet in Jesus Christ, you don't just have life, you have eternal life. And so you'll die physically, but then you'll live forever if you'll come to Him. Let's pray.